saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. Well, I too want to welcome you to Bachelor Creek today. We are glad you are here, and we hope that you had a very Merry Christmas with your family this year. Uh, this is a time of the year where we get to reflect over what has happened for us in the past year. And as I was reflecting over the past year, one thing that happened to me was one of the most, one of the best experiences, but also one of the worst experiences. And it happened almost last year at this time, at the very beginning of last year, where I had LASIK surgery on my eyes. So I don't know if you know much about LASIK, but when they take you in for LASIK, the first thing they do is have you sign this waiver saying, if you go blind, it's not our fault. So that's really assuring as you get in there. And then the next thing they do is they give you a massage. Now, as I'm getting this massage, I'm thinking in the back of my head, this must be pretty terrible if they're giving me a massage before you go into this. Because I don't know any other surgeries where they're giving you a massage before you're having the surgery. So that happens, and then the next thing they do is they take you into this room, and they put you in a chair and lean you back, and they force your eyelids open, which is a terrible feeling. And then they go in and do the surgery. And this whole time, I am hoping and I am praying that I still have my vision at the end of this. So you come out of it, and they cover your eyes for a while, and I am just praying that this is going to work out for me. Luckily, I have a few eye doctors in my family, so I am texting them on a regular basis, making sure everything was okay. And as I started to think about that story, it reminded me of a time where Jesus healed somebody's sight. Most of the time when Jesus healed someone's sight or anything that he was healing, it was instant. It was immediate. The healing happened. But in this story that I was thinking of, Jesus actually had to heal the man twice. So he takes this man outside the city. This is in the book of Mark. He takes him outside of the city, and he does something pretty strange to start with. He spits in the man's eyes. Which, to me, spit is like one of the things we care the least about. Like, we don't care about our spit. But you, even Jesus' spit had power in it. And he takes that spit, and he spits into the man's eyes, and he asks the man, can you see now? And the man says, yes, I can see, but the people look like trees walking around. So then, Jesus takes his hands and lays his hands on him, and he says, okay, can you see now? And the man says this. This is in Mark chapter Eight, I think we have it on the screen here. His sight was completely restored, and he could see everything clearly. Now, here's one thing that I know about Jesus. Jesus does everything with intentionality. So if Jesus can heal instantly, and in this moment he takes two times to heal a man, there must be a reason behind it. Here's the reason. At the time, the Pharisees and even his own disciples thought that they were healed spiritually, but in all reality, they still had a blurry vision of many things of faith, especially their vision of Jesus. They needed healed completely. They needed healed like this blind man needed healed. And so today, going into 2000, 2020, I, I just want to sit here and take a vision test together as a church, because I know that I need the vision test more than anybody. There are so many times in my life where I don't see Jesus as clearly as I should. I think that I'm following Jesus the way that I should, but I know at the back of my mind that I'm not. 
And so today, we're going to show you a few things to help you take this vision test. And if any of these boxes you could put a check mark in, then you know, like me, your vision of Jesus isn't always as clear as it should be. So let's take a look at these here on the screen. Here's one. I am constantly trying to be good enough to make it to heaven. I don't think I will ever measure up to other Christians. I use the words of Jesus to judge others instead of evaluating myself. I'd rather do what I want to do instead of surrendering my life to Jesus. I like Jesus. He's a great teacher, and I try to live by his principles, but that's about it. Now, I give you these things because I know in my own life, there are many times where I check the things on that list. And if that's ca the case, then we need to see Jesus in a different light. So, today, I want to do something. I want to take a chance to see Jesus clearly. But in, before we do that, if you could pray with me, because the Holy Spirit's in the business of transformation. So I want to go and I want to pray that we can see Jesus clearly today. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for the opportunity to see you clearly. I thank you for the story of Mark 8, where we see a man healed twice. Because I know that even though you have saved me, and even though I am following you, there are so many times in my own life that I don't see you clearly, and I need that desperately. So today, I pray, Holy Spirit, come in and show us this vision that we need to see of Jesus. In your son's name I pray, amen. If we're going to see Jesus differently, then we need something to wake us up. Now, in my own personal life, I am a very deep sleeper. I'm pretty sure this is the only thing that my wife doesn't really like about me. You can ask her. There might be a few more things, but that's probably at the top of her list. Because I sleep through everything. So if an alarm goes off, I'm sleeping through that alarm. If kids are yelling at the, in the night, I'm sleeping through that. I missed a lot of diaper changes when our kids were small because I just sleep through everything. But there's one thing, one night, that I was woke up from a deep sleep. Here's what happened. One of our boys who's like me, is a very deep sleeper, woke up. And when he wakes up from a deep sleep, he is just hysterical. You don't even know what he's talking about or what he needs. He's crying and you're trying to figure it out. And so he walks into our room and he says, Dad, I have to go to the bathroom, which I replied, kind of half awake, half asleep at the time. All right, just use our bathroom in our room. So he comes into our room and he's heading towards the bathroom. And right next to where our bathroom is, is the laundry basket. And so he's walking towards the bathroom, kind of turns to go into the bathroom, and then stops. And the next thing I hear is this waterfall-esque sound, not going into the toilet, but going into our laundry basket. <laughs> Which at that moment, I am up, right? I hear this, I know what's going on. I run to him, pick him up, he's peeing over everything as I'm taking him into the bathroom. And I take him to the toilet, where I don't think any of the pee went into the toilet. But I can tell you that was a moment where I was woke up for a good chunk of the night trying to settle back down from this event. Now, I tell you this because I think sometimes the Gospels, the stories that we usually go to about Jesus, they become almost too familiar to us. The picture that we have of Jesus becomes just a normal, average guy that's going through this life. And especially this time of the year when we're talking about the Christmas season and we see baby Jesus, like we've heard that story so many times, 
then it just becomes, wow, yes, Jesus came and he was a baby and he grew up and died on the cross for us. But it doesn't change us. We're just going through the motions when it comes to understanding who Jesus is. And so I think that there's one book that we have to turn to to get our eyes cleared up and to wake up from the sleep that we sometimes are in in our faith. And that's the book of Revelation. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, Tyler, I don't know if you've read much of Revelation, but it's like one of the most confusing books out there. So for us to understand Jesus better from Revelation seems like you're a bit off base. And I would agree with you. Revelation is a very confusing book. But I think that Revelation is what we need to hear today as the church. Because Revelation, it aims to overwhelm our senses. To give us this glorious, magnificent picture of Jesus. Probably the most magnificent, the clearest, truest picture of Jesus that we find throughout the entire Bible can be found in Revelation. In Revelation, we meet the risen Christ and the reigning king, the one that can clear our vision up once and for all. So, that's the picture of Jesus I want you to see today. But before we get to that picture, there's a few things that you need to know about Revelation. And here it is. Revelation is an apocalyptic and prophetic letter to the church. So let me explain to you what these things mean as we get into it. So first of all, it's apocalyptic. Now, when this word was originally translated from the Greek, the people that were translating it decided to use the word revelation. But at the time, this could have also been translated as apocalypse. Now, when it was first translated, apocalypse wasn't a word that they used much in English, so they decided to use revelation instead. But apocalypse simply means to reveal or to uncover. Now, the word apocalypse for us has taken on a little bit of a different meaning. We think of like an end-of-the-world type event where worldwide catastrophe ends life as we know it. Or maybe some of you today are thinking of like zombies, right? Zombie apocalypse coming. But that is not at all what Revelation is about. Yes, there are details that focus on the future. But at the core of Revelation is the pulling back of the curtain of the reign of our King Jesus. The first book of Revelation, the first verse of Revelation tells us what we need to know. It says this, this is a revelation from Jesus Christ. But in this translation here, you can also put, this is a revelation about Jesus Christ. Both are true. Both could be what you find in your Bible. This is a revelation. It's an apocalypse about Jesus from Jesus. This is the unveiling of our king for all of us to see. Okay. In Revelation 1, we know that this is a vision, an apocalypse given to a man named John. Now, John was one of Jesus's closest disciples. He walked with Jesus. He spent three years being with Jesus. He wrote the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and now he's been given this vision to share with an audience. And at the time, John was exiled to an island called Patmos, which was in the Aegean Sea. And that island was a place where he was going to spend the rest of his life in prison for confessing Christ. So for the rest of his life, he's going to be separated from everybody that he loves. And beyond that, all the other disciples that he spent time with for those three years have now been martyred for their faith in Jesus. 
So this vision that John's about ready to receive and to share with other people, he needed just as much as anybody else. Because there had to be days where he was ready to give up. I'm the only one left. Please take me, God. I am ready to be with you. But that wasn't what was going to play out for John. Revelation is also prophetic. Once again, when we hear prophetic, I think a lot of times we picture future events. But prophets were the mouthpiece of God. So God told the prophets what to say, and in turn, the prophets told other people God's message. And yes, many times those messages God gave had future events in them, but it was always about the here and now. It was about the immediate reaction given to people saying, hey, you need to repent. You need to turn back to God. You need to follow him faithfully. If you look at the Old Testament prophets, that's what you see over and over again. Prophets crying out for the Israelites to repent. Please repent or this is what's going to happen. Don't you understand what's in store if you keep going down the same path? So as we see this vision, you need to know that, yes, there are future events, but this is, was for an immediate action to be taken by the church. And finally, this leads us to the reality that Revelation is also a letter. It's a letter written to local churches of the first century, and we have intercepted this letter thousands of years after it was written. Now, this is the time of the year where we get Christmas cards in the mail. And those Christmas cards, we love to open up and to catch up on people's lives to see how their year has been going. But if you were to intercept one of those letters that wasn't yours, that was sent to you by accident, and you opened it up, it would be a little confusing to you why this is coming to you or who it's from. Now, I have a friend that sends out Christmas cards every year, and he does it a little bit differently. You have to know who he is and his sense of humor to get the Christmas cards that he sends. But I want to show you the one that he sent this year to give you a picture of this. This is a Christmas card that he sent. Now, let me just tell you a few things about this. My friend Jordan does not have a mullet, and neither does his son that you'll see in the picture. And he usually can take a good picture, but in his Christmas cards, he's always looking off to the side. It's never in focus. It's just a ridiculous picture that you're getting in the mail for him. And I always laugh because I think, hey, if somebody else were to receive this Christmas card, they would be like, what in the world is going on with this family, right? That would be something you'd be confused about because you don't know the author and you don't know the audience. You don't know the history that Jordan and I have. You don't know that he sends these out every year to be funny. So you would be out of the loop when it came to finding a Christmas card like this in the mail. That's where we're at with Revelation. Now, we've talked about the author of Revelation now. We know it's John. But we also need to look at the audience of this letter. And I have a map here that will help you because this letter is written to the seven churches that you'll see up on this map. Um, as you go around that map, this letter would have been written at Patmos where he was exiled, and then it would have been delivered to these different churches one at a time. And as a church would receive his letter, they'd read it out loud as a church. So there wasn't like overanalyzing going on. As this was read out loud to them, they would have known this means we are supposed to take immediate action from what we're hearing. And from one church to the other, the letter would have been passed on. And here's what's going on at these churches at the time. It's very similar to what John is facing. Churches are facing persecution because of their belief in Jesus. 
they are being uh, persecuted by the Romans on one side, who want Christians to bow down to the emperor, and on the other side, the Jewish people who want this movement to stop because they don't believe Jesus is the Son of God. They don't want people confessing Christ and for this to spread. So they're trying to squash it on one side. The Romans are trying to squash it on the other side. They're facing this intense suffering, harsh persecution for, for believing in Jesus. And then beyond that, they're also facing the reality that, hey, if we just uh, give in to the Romans, if we follow the things that the Romans are doing, if we become like the Romans, then this persecution and suffering will end. So all the temptations that are out there that you and I face too, they're facing at the same time as a church. And John is given this vision from God to address those two things, the faithfulness of the church and for the church to continue on even in the midst of facing persecution. So all of this has to be in the back of your mind as we get ready to hear this vision from John. Like that's the context that we need to know entering into this picture of Jesus that I think will help us as a church see Jesus in a different light as well. And the language that you're going to hear in the next few minutes, it's not safe language. This is not baby Jesus that we're going to encounter. This is not Jesus with the little children. It's not Jesus healing the lame man. This is the pulling back of the curtain of the God that created the universe. This is the moment where we see God, Jesus, the king reigning on high. In all of his majesty, we get to see this picture of Jesus that's been given to John. And so what I would like to do, just for a minute, is to have us close our eyes together as a church. And just like the early church would have received this letter from John, I want us to use our ears to hear the words of John, the things that he wrote down, the things that he saw of this God, Jesus, that ignited people's imaginations back then and still ignites our imaginations to this day. So if you could close your eyes with us and listen to John's vision of Jesus. When I turned to see who was speaking to me, I saw seven gold lampstands. And standing in the middle of the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man. He was wearing a long robe with a gold sash across his chest. His head and his hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like flames of fire. His feet were like polished bronze, refined in a furnace, and his voice thundered like mighty ocean waves. He held seven stars in his right hand, and a sharp two-edged sword came from his mouth. His face was like the sun in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as if I were dead. But he laid his right hand on me and said, Don't be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I died, but look, I am alive forever and ever. I hold the keys of death and the grave. Write down what you have seen, both the things that are now happening and the things that will happen. This is the meaning of the mystery 
of the seven stars you saw in my right hand and the seven gold lampstands. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So here's John, one of Jesus' closest friends. He's asked to write down this vision that he knows is going to be difficult to understand, difficult to put into words. And he hears this thunderous, trumpeting voice behind him. So he turns around and he looks, expecting to see his friend Jesus, human Jesus, the one that he had spent those three years with walking on earth. But as he turns, he sees a different picture. It's not the Jesus that he's grown accustomed to. And the Jesus that he sees drops him as if he were dead. That's the picture of Jesus that is given to him in this vision. God Jesus. The reigning king in all of his majesty standing before him. And he can't even stand up in his presence. He drops down as if he's dead. But then, in the midst of this vision, we realize that it is the same Jesus. Because of the words that are given to John. The familiar words that we see Jesus share with his disciples in the Gospels. Fear not. Do not be afraid because I have conquered death once and for all. I have overcome the grave. The battle has been won. I don't, I mean, when we picture Revelation sometimes, I think we think of Satan and Jesus going back and forth in this epic battle. But this is not a dualistic vision of battle. This is domination that has happened. Jesus is holding death in his hand. He's saying, this will not be your future, John. This will not be the church's future. I have a plan for your life. And guess what? I am reigning as you speak. I am reigning as you are exiled on Patmos, away from everybody that you know. I am reigning in the midst of the church. That's the picture of Jesus that John receives. It's indescribable. And yet John's asked to give words to it. It would be like us never having seen a picture of the Grand Canyon before. And one of our friends says, you have to see it. They blindfold us, they drive us out to the Grand Canyon, and they walk us to the edge of the Grand Canyon. They lift up the blindfold as the sun's setting on the Grand Canyon, and you see it and you just stand in awe. You're like, how do I even put this into words? What I'm seeing right now. Times that by about a billion, and you have the task in front of John here that he has to describe the most magnificent thing that he has ever seen in his life and try to do it justice with words. John does his very best, and he gives us these words that we're going to put on the screen so you can see. Um, son of man is what he begins with. Like the son of man, this is what I saw. This is actually drawing back to Daniel chapter 7, which I think we have in the next slide that you'll see here. Um, Daniel chapter 7 says this, In my vision at night, I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man. Coming with, coming with the clouds of heaven, he approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He 
was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshiped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away, and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. John uses a lot of Old Testament references to point back to who Jesus is. There's over 400 references in the Old Testament in Revelation. He's constantly drawing back to imagery that would be familiar to the church. So he uses words like golden sash, white hair, eyes of fire, bronze feet, sword from mouth, face like the sun, words that are so odd to us, so not familiar to the picture of Jesus that we've grown accustomed to. But just like us who pictures Jesus as a man who lived a life as a man and died a death like a man, the early church had that picture in their head too because they'd walked with Jesus. They'd heard Jesus be talked about. The picture that they had of Jesus was man Jesus. And what they needed more than anything in the midst of persecution, in the midst of falling away from following Jesus, was this picture of Jesus. Jesus reigning on high. If only for one second we could uncover this Jesus. If we could pull back the curtain and see this Jesus, I wonder how things would change. I wonder what it would look like for us as a church to see this Jesus. And then if we turn back to Revelation 1, we see where King Jesus is standing. He's standing in the middle of these seven lampstands. And these seven lampstands, we know, represent the local churches, those churches we saw on the map. But the number seven is very important for us to know. And there's a reason why God chose to give that number to John. Because seven in scripture always represents completeness. And so there is meaning behind that. It means that this is not only for the local churches of the first century. This is for us in 2020 as the church that John is writing to us as well. That even though we've intercepted this letter from the ancient church, this matters for us today too. That Jesus is actually standing in the middle of us as we speak. He is holding the church in his hand. He is giving the church hope. The church is God's vessel to deliver light into the the darkness. This is the image that God has chosen to leave with us. And I don't want you to miss it. Magnificent, untamed, all-powerful Jesus, standing in the center of broken, flawed, weary churches, like Bachelor Creek. I can stand here and tell you, as a leader of, of Bachelor Creek, that we are broken. That nobody here is perfect. That if we were to see that vision of Jesus, we too would fall at Jesus' feet. And yet, God wants us to know that Jesus is in our midst. And because of that, we have victory. That we are participants in the kingdom of God. So, with all that being said, we could break apart what Revelation is talking about here. We could take every little line of Revelation and say, okay, this is what this means, and this is what this means, and even for this first picture of Jesus that we see in Revelation, I think there's a slide up there that shows some different things about these things. Yeah. Golden sash, that represents the royalty and priesthood of Jesus. The white hair, 
victory, purity, wisdom, the eyes of fire, penetrating vision, bronze feet, strength and stability, sword from the mouth, piercing truth, face like sun, splendor and glory of Jesus. And then the seven lampstands are the local church. But if we did that, I think we'd be missing the point of what Revelation is all about. I think there's a picture of this. This right here is what God wants us to take away. I think God wants us to fall down in awe of the king. I think that he wants us to see Jesus clearly because sometimes we don't. We go through life being unaffected that this, the God of the universe, came in the form of a baby. That the God of the universe went to the cross for us. We miss that picture of Jesus. So what should we do with this today? If we're going to take something away from Revelation today, what should it be? How do we respond when the blurriness goes away and we start to see Jesus with 2020 vision? I think that the appropriate response to the strange language that we find in Revelation is worship. It's for us to respond the same way that John responded. And it's falling at the feet of Jesus, knowing that we are broken and we're hurting. And we need a Savior to come and save us. It's falling down at his feet and saying, you know what, I know that this God, this Jesus that came and saved me is saying, fear not. That death has been defeated, that we can do it because of Jesus. As we see Jesus for who he really is, God and man, the reigning king, the one who is coming again, we are called into immediate action. We're called to do something with that. So church, we have to be about what Jesus is about. We have to be about kingdom things. If we're going to be following the Jesus that we see in Revelation, it's all about following him with everything that we've got, which looks differently than what we do sometimes when we lose our focus, when we lose the picture of Jesus. We have to love people differently. We have to follow Jesus and stop following the world. We have to admit our sins and forgive other people of their sins. We have to recognize that as the church, it is God's plan to use the church, us, and every other church to bring the good news of Jesus to the world. Jesus stands in our midst today. He's standing here as we speak. And I hope that this week you have a chance to read some of Revelation. And as you approach Revelation, we're going to remember that Revelation is an apocalyptic, prophetic letter written to the church, but it had one goal in mind. And that one goal is for us to see Jesus clearly, to help us to have 2020 vision. So here it is. Church, see Jesus, follow Jesus. That's our call as a church. See Jesus, follow Jesus. We're going to go into our time of communion today. And I'm so thankful that every week we get a chance to take the bread and the juice together because this is our moment in time to see Jesus clearly. It's to remember that for always and forever that our king is reigning, that he reigns now and he will be coming again. And as Christ followers, we get to remember that through communion. This is the sacred moment where we pick up the bread and we pick up the cup and we declare that we are going to follow Jesus faithfully until the end.
that's what the early church needed. That's what we need today, is to see this picture of Jesus that changes us from the inside out. So let's pray, and then we'll take the Lord's Supper together, recognizing that our King stands in our presence as we feast. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you that he is reigning in this moment. And God, I, I pray that our eyes can become clear, that we can be woken out of our deep sleep because we need that more than anything, God. I need that. I need to be changed from the inside out knowing that this picture of Jesus is the true picture. And also the one that we see as baby Jesus is the true picture, that God and man as one came, that Jesus came to this earth to die on the cross so that we could have hope. And in this moment, we get a chance to take the cup and the bread and to victoriously feast together knowing that the battle has already been won and that you are in our midst as we speak, celebrating with us. In your son's name I pray, amen.